Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is your weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action from across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host and joining me is the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. Jay, it's been a controversial weekend, but a brilliant one too. Saturday was a feast of derbies where we saw some sensational football and Sunday served up another batch of delights. What have you enjoyed? I think my head's still spinning from it all, to be honest. Obviously, I was at the the Brentford-Leeds game, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I really enjoyed uh, some of the goals in that. Obviously, Manchester United-Arsenal, two teams who have had very contrasting starts to the season. But it's one of the most, I think, exciting games we've seen in the Premier League so far. And obviously, Inter Milan AC uh, wasn't too bad either. Yeah, really, really good. Really good. I mean, we're going to talk about the drama that unfolded down at Old Trafford and an absolutely cracking derby della Madonnina, as you say, as well as Real Madrid's perfect start. But Jay, I think we've had we've had a weekend in the Premier League which has been drenched in controversy. Decisions from both on-field referees and VAR officials causing uproar in fan bases up and down the country. Uh, you're up close and personal in that Leeds-Brentford game with one of these, where Jesse Marsh was red-carded on the touchline after being incensed over a non-penalty call for his Leeds United side. What did you make of it? To be honest... You know, I completely understand why Jesse Marsh got that infuriated with it. When I saw the incident between Aaron Hickey and Somerville happen in in real time, I thought Hickey had given away a penalty. Um, The replays only made me feel like that was the case more. Um, Hickey was clearly pulling Somerville's shirt um, just outside the box, but then clearly makes contact with his leg as Somerville goes into the box. Um, And I think it was 3-1 at this point. So it was a really, really massive moment in the game. Um, So I can completely understand Jesse Marsh's frustration. I think what probably worked against him in this scenario is his reaction, because within seconds of the incident happening, you know, the managers sit right in front of you at Brentford Stadium. And I got my phone out and recorded him because he basically jumped on the pitch and started making all of these random motions. Then he goes over to the linesman, starts like pointing in his face, getting really uh, probably a little bit too aggressive. And then obviously gets sent off. And I think, and you know, this is not me putting my conspiracy theory hat on, but I think his reaction probably has made VAR and the referee almost forget about that incident. Um, Marsh's reaction almost kind of like overshadowed it. So in that moment, they're, they're no longer thinking about that. They're thinking about the fact that and Marsh tried to, I think, deny it in his post-match interview. But he's clearly kind of verbally abused the referee or the linesman or the fourth official in some way. So at that point, what happened in the penalty box has kind of become irrelevant to the referees. Yeah, it's been sidelined. But if we're looking at that just incident itself, then I completely agree Leeds should have had a penalty. Yeah, it's one of those weird ones, isn't it? Because like, we see managers get animated, very animated on the touchlines these days. Um, obviously, we saw Thomas Tuchel and Antonio Conte going at each other. <laughs> Jurgen Klopp's had a few of these where he's, you know, shouting at the referees or the linesmen. I felt like it was a not harsh because it's probably correct, but maybe a little bit inconsistent in the reaction we see to other other managers and, and and when they berate officials. And obviously, we don't know exactly what was said uh, by Jesse Marsh, but. It was quite amusing that he just kept shouting, that's a penalty. And then that was the moment the card is brandished. And I think there was some feeling that it, it harsh is wrong, but it, that it was a little bit like, oh, he probably could have been booked for, for that kind of display. But equally, you know, you, you do have to treat officials with respect. And, and I think he probably overstepped the mark. But it, it was one that was 
you know interesting and look it's 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 not even by any means the biggest decision of the weekend that's caused uproar and we'll rattle through some of those decisions in question perhaps the one that's seen the most explosive backlash i think especially on social media was the decision to disallow a late equalizer for west ham united at stamford bridge for a foul on edward mendy everyone seems to have an opinion on this jay where do you stand I'm not quite in the, the David Moyes, Declan Rice, Craig Dawson camp of it being scandalous and rotten. Um, I might be in the small minority of people who can, I can understand why it was given. Do I agree with it? Um, I don't think I do. Um, you're going to get incidents like that happen countless times in games. It looks like the contact from Bowen on Mendy is really, really minimal. So to rule a goal out in those kind of circumstances is uh, yeah, beyond kind of infuriating. And I'm sure we're going to touch on this a minute when we kind of, you know, scroll through the rest of the, the VAR rap sheet from this weekend. You know, it was brought in to, to clear up clear and obvious errors. And I, I don't think that was a clear and obvious error. Um, football's a contact sport. Um, we, need to, we need to remember that. We don't want to lose that from the game. And I think, you know, goalkeepers and, and strikers will clash countless times in a game jostling for the ball. I saw Thomas Tuchel after the game actually tried to suggest that West Ham's first goal was a little bit um, sketchy because Mendy ended up kind of sprawled on the line. But I thought that was wasn't absolutely... That his own, wasn't that his own match? Well, <laughs> you it, thought it, that it, was for fun. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think if you're getting to the point where you're you're disallowing goals for, for that kind of contact, you, you could disallow a, a goal every single game for something like that happens. So I was a little bit disappointed to kind of see it play out that way, if I'm truly honest. Yeah, I'm completely with you. I think that goal should probably stand. And I'm also with you on that. I can see why it's ruled out. But there are, you know, countless instances in this game alone. There's one where Brozier has done and it goes out, you know, it gets palmed away by the goalkeeper. Brozier sort of like trips over him. That doesn't get given as a free kick. You know, there, there are kind of, you know, we see this week in, week out, as you say, and, and and that's the kind of infuriating thing I imagine for most fan bases. It's not necessarily that a decision goes against you, although I think the kind of context of this, it being, you know, so late in the game, it being an equaliser in a London derby and one that was really hotly contested and one that West Ham probably deserved to get something out of, it, you know, on the balance of play, makes it more difficult to accept in some some ways. I know that shouldn't affect the decision. And, you know, and it's probably right not to affect the decision. But equally, you know, the frustration can boil over given all of that context. And we saw a really strange one in the game between Crystal Palace and Newcastle as well, where uh, there's a goal disallowed for Newcastle. It's a, it's a Tyrick Mitchell own goal, um, in which case he shoves someone into his own goalkeeper and then it hits, it hits him on the head and goes in. And... For my money, it's a penalty to Newcastle and a goal. Obviously not both, but like it's a penalty to Newcastle or a goal. And instead, Crystal Palace somehow get a free kick out of it. And it just is like one of those decisions that's truly, truly baffling. Do you know what? If I'm honest, I didn't actually see it. Um, but what I was going to say is that on, on context being really important, is that going back to what happened in the Brentford-Leeds game, what we should have said is that the reason or the extra reason why Jesse Marsh was so infuriated was because Brentford had a penalty in the first half, which wasn't given originally. And then the referee was told to go over and look at the monitor. So all Jesse Marsh was really asking for in that incident or in that moment is for a level of consistency. And this is the big, big problem with VAR, um, just the real lack of consistency. Just all Jesse Marsh wanted, I'm sure he still would have been upset had the referee gone to the monitor and not given the penalty, but was for to be treated the same way. And that's what he was kind of talking about, a lack of respect. And I think 
that's kind of the underlying feeling with all these VAR decisions. It's just they're given in one game, the next game they're not given. There, there doesn't seem to be any consistency with it all and it just gets frustrating. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, Everton fans absolutely livid that Virgil van Dijk wasn't sent off for Liverpool after seemingly connecting with the ankle of Ananas, you know, studs up. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt from anyone's perspective, even from Liverpool's perspective, that this is a nasty tackle. I'm not 100% sure it's a stonewall red, but it's a dangerous tackle, I think. And you're looking at it going... Oh, should that should be checked right and, and these are the these are the other things like you know there's that difference between just wanting things to be looked at and, and understood as much as decisions going your way or going against you i mean we've seen tackles like the one van dyke made on onana um we've seen players get red carded for that before and that comes back to my point about consistency um it's one one week you can get away with some something and and, and the next week you won't it was definitely like you said, a nasty tackle. And you never want to see players get sent off, but it does need to be investigated a little bit better. And it just seems like there's just this constant confusion about what is and what isn't allowed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but like, this is the thing with it, because obviously it's down to human error. And whilst VAR is, you know, a machine in in kind of context, it's not really, because it's obviously someone looking at a machine. Yeah. And, and, and therefore you're always getting these different things of human error. And that's why I suppose I have a little bit more sympathy with Jesse Marsh, because he's like, these are the same people in the same game. If you have different kind of levels of leniency between different referees, that's one thing. But within a singular game unit, it shouldn't be any different. And, you know, it, it's not just referees, it's not just VAR officials, because you go to Villa Park and Aston Villa were denied what would have been a second goal to set them into the lead against Manchester City because of an offside call in the build-up that wasn't offside. Now, this is a bit different because the whistle is already gone by the time that Philippe Coutinho strikes the ball. So I think there's an argument that Edison doesn't even really try to, to save it. But... You know, we, we've had this kind of bizarre debate for, for years. You know, you see a player's offside and the linesman keeps their flag down for ages. People are running on. And this year they've been told to, you know, not do that quite as much, you know, to, to actually raise their flag. In this instance, the flag is raised and it's perhaps too hasty. And and so there's, there's a lot of people asking for lots of different things, I think is, is, is important to note here. You know, in some ways you can't do right for wrong. But, you know, there, there is an element of being like, look, that ball is clearly still in play. Let this one play out. You, you kind of alluded to it there. As, a, as an official, you're damned if you do and you're damned oh, yeah. if you don't. Because the argument before when the linesman would keep their flags down was there's going to be the chance of a player getting injured. And I think we have kind of seen that on a couple of occasions. Yet in this scenario, the flag goes up too early, continues Kalini on side and Aston Villa are robbed of maybe not necessarily a goal, but at least what would have been a, a good, good yeah. goal-scoring opportunity because it's pretty obvious Man City's players kind of stop and Edison kind of half half goes for it and half doesn't. So, yet again, we're just in another conundrum. Should they keep their, should they keep their flags down? I think in that scenario where it's that tight, you should keep your flag down. That's the only thing. And again, I'm not. I'm not a referee. I've never. I've never refed a game in my life. So sorry for. <laughs> sorry for telling you all how to do your jobs. But I think when it's that tight, maybe just need to be a little bit more pragmatic. Whereas when we've seen play go on and there's a player five yards offside or ten yards offside, that's yeah. when you know you need to be a little bit smart and say, okay, I think I'm allowed to raise my flag in this scenario. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and look, it is really hard. And I, I don't like criticizing referees and criticizing officials because, you know, as we said, it's a thankless task. Mm. Um, and anything you do is going to upset one or both the fan bases that you're in front of. There's a ceaseless tide of analyzing decisions online. At the lower levels, there's been countless stories of abuse for referees in the game. And ultimately, I think there's clearly a lack of new blood coming through the officiating pipelines because of all of this, meaning that talented people who do have the potential to become top level officials are put off following through on that as a kind of career path if you will because they're like why would i why would i put myself through this because it's there's i get no joy out of it i'm getting abused every weekend when i'm when i'm refereeing I, i'm doing my best here i'm not trying to you know, mess anything up and it means that the game is is kind of stagnated in terms of you know you'd imagine you're looking at imagine it in a, in a footballing context right young players coming through to kind of push the older players to do better if those young players aren't coming through and there's no challenges and we talk about this in terms of squad building you like you need challenge to your position because it keeps you at your top level it keeps you sharp if those players are you know if these referees aren't coming through to kind of be like i'm the next thing on the block in the officiating world if you will you kind of don't have that and therefore standards drop and so i do wonder how does this all end because Right now, I, I don't see any reason why someone would go in and become a referee because ultimately you're putting yourself up for a life of pain. Exactly. I, I'm not too sure you could have put it much better. If you're a 10-year-old 10 10 year child or maybe, you know, you're a little bit older and you're kind of asking yourself, you know, maybe, maybe I'm never going to make it as a footballer or maybe I'm more attracted to becoming a referee. When you kind of look into it and investigate it a little bit more, what is it about being a referee that's that attractive? As you kind of mentioned at the grassroots level, the abuse is even more rampant. You know, my, my former lecturer at university uh, is a linesman. He's been verbally abused. He's been physically abused at games before. And when that kind of behavior is almost, I wasn't I was obviously shocked when I heard that story. But at the same time, it didn't necessarily surprise me because unfortunately, that's some of the attitudes people hold towards referees as if they're just the kind of this, this person you can just constantly bombard with all this abuse. And, you know, you're wrong with this, you're wrong with that. As you've kind of mentioned, people need to look at how do we make being a referee an attractive career? So you kind of have to look at, are they getting paid enough? Are they being protected enough? We're probably going to see the conversation about referees should do post-match interviews and explain all their decisions come out again off the back of what's happened this weekend. I think yeah. that would be really chaotic to introduce something like that. Um, yeah. to kind of put them in the limelight to make them have to feel as if they've got to explain themselves. I think when you've kind of got that intense blame culture, um, I really don't think that would make it any easier for the referees to do their jobs. I think there's so many other things we can kind of look at. And as you kind of said, people need to recognise VAR is not a robot. We all have individual biases. What you might consider is a foul, I might wave as play on. So when you're factoring that into handball incidents, offside, well, maybe not offsides, offsides is a bit more clear, you know, yeah. fouls and things like that. Everyone's going to have a different opinion. So we kind of forget that. We expect VAR to be perfect, but the actual whole kind of setup of it is flawed anyways. Um, so something definitely needs to change, but what that is, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it is in terms of offsides and, and those kind of things, maybe it is automation. Maybe that's, that's where we've got to. I, I don't, um, uh, sorry to intrude. I don't think it's automation with, with offsides. I think offsides is pretty simple, clear and obvious. So to use the daylight. To daylight. use the to use the best example, Ivan Tony's goal in Brentford's, you know, match against Fulham a couple of weeks ago that we are both at. The one that gets ruled out for offside, I don't think that should be disallowed if you're having to go to VAR to check it because what it was 
probably a centimetre of his boot that was, was in front of the last defender. That is yeah. not what VAR was brought in for. So when it's really, really tight like that, I think you should just stick with whatever the, the referee's on-field decision was. A little bit like um, cricket and Hawkeye. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's with... An umpire's call. Kind umpire's of call. Fa- thank you for, for getting the right lingo. Um, but with, yeah, fouls and things like that, that's where it gets a little bit more tricky. And obviously, fair cre- we have to shout out Michael Oliver for, for going to the monitor this weekend in the, the Bournemouth-Nottingham Forest game and actually sticking with his decision because yeah. that was really refreshing to see because it feels like referees have almost become indoctrinated to if I'm sent to the monitor I have to overturn my original decision and so it's actually good to to see him say actually do you know what I think I was right first time round it'd be good to see a little bit more of that coming through yeah yeah I think you're absolutely spot on uh let's leave the referees there for the time being I'm sure we'll come back to them when we're discussing games because it's only natural at this point but um let's get stuck into the meat and bones of an actual full game we'll start at Old Trafford, where Manchester United hosted Arsenal on USA Network. They won the game 3-1. It was a really entertaining affair, I thought. And the first half was lit up by Anthony's goal. He scored on his debut. He looked quite lively. There are clearly elements of his game that aren't perfect yet. There are clearly elements of this uh, he hasn't completely, you know, worked his way into this team yet. That's fine. That's natural. He, you know, he had he made some mistakes. There were some some loose passes, but importantly, he scored. And, and I think that's that's crucial because with the pressure of such a price tag, Jay, the third most expensive signing in United's history, it was just so important that he got off to a good start. Yeah, and, you know, maybe I'm saying this because I'm not a Manchester United fan. Shock horror, I know. But um, before he scored that goal, um, I thought he was in danger of being a little bit too gimmicky um, yes, I agree. with some of, some of the skills he was doing. So I think to kind of then pop up with a goal in that moment and not just against any team, but against Arsenal, a team that Manchester United have such a historic rivalry with, I don't think he probably could have asked for a better start. And I think if I was a Manchester United fan watching that game, what probably would have excited me even more than the goal was his celebration, instantly kissing the badge. This is clearly a player who was desperate to get this move, is full, full of passion. And that's probably not necessarily what Manchester United have lacked, but what certainly what Manchester United fans have wanted to see from their team over the last year or so is young players full of energy who really want to play for this team. And when you've had the whole circus with Solskjaer, Ranić, and Ronaldo, I think some of that joy has been sucked out of them a little bit. So seeing a player like Anthony, Brazilian, right wing, coming on with flair, got that goal, I think the building blocks are in place there for him to, to, to really succeed in this team. Yeah, I think you're right, and uh, on, on both counts, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, there was a, there was a bit of debate about is it okay to kiss the badge after one game, but I, but I think that's I think that's you know I think it's cool, and you know what? Yeah, yes, it's a bit, it's probably a bit much, right? Sure, but equally, you know, you're you're spot on. Is that like he spoke since he's joined Man United? He's nothing but speak about how excited he is to be there, how how much it means to him to to play for the club. It's clearly, you know, United are a huge club, and and, and clearly growing up had an influence on. on on Anthony, you know, there's an element here where you're looking at and going, that's really cool that you want to play so much for this Manchester United side. And that it means this much to you to be there, to be at Old Trafford, be in front of these fans and to succeed. Um, but I also think you're right in that there was a lot of, there was a lot of style and source without any real substance until the goal. Um, but, you know, that's, that's all forgotten in that instant because he scores the goal, he scores the opener and suddenly it's like, okay, right, this, you know, he's off the mark. 
there's that kind of weight off your shoulders a little bit that you're not a big money signing who hasn't hasn't started well. Um, and, and I think we'll see him, you know, get better and better in this side. So it's going to be very interesting. Um, Arsenal were, though, perhaps a little bit unlucky not to go into the break on level terms. They thought they'd taken the lead actually before that Anthony goal after Gabriel Martinelli finished a lovely ball with a plomb, dinked it over the keeper. Um, but it was ruled out for a foul on Christian Eriksen in the build-up. Erdegaard doesn't get the ball in the duel, but this is soft. Again, this is where people's opinions on how the game should be played come into it. Um, and I'm a little bit torn on it because I want games to be, to kind of have that physical element to it, to have a little bit of contact. Um, but I do think probably what also counts against Odegaard is that he has come in from behind against behind. Ericsson. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, he doesn't get the ball. Um, so while you know, to really sit on the fence, which I'm sure, you know, everybody's going to love. <laughs> Whilst I can acknowledge and recognise Ericsson probably went down a little bit too easily, maybe. I also think Odegaard was probably a little bit too forceful at the same time. Um, and so I, I, I completely understand why it wasn't given. Yeah, yeah. My, my kind of take on it is, is I think it's a foul, but I don't think it's that clear and obvious a foul that you'd go back and overturn it. That That's where I'm at. But I mean, again, that what's the clear and obvious bar? The subjective is exactly, so exactly. thing comes back to, to everything we said. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to hold on referees because this will become in danger <laughs> of becoming a, a decisions podcast. I thought Arsenal were dominant in that first period after the break and, and Bakaya Saka fired the gunners level after Gabby Jesus had caused some chaos in the United United box. It looked at that point, Jay, I thought that Arsenal were kind of in control of the game and they looked like they'd go on and, and, and maybe, you know, try and break that unbelievable record that United have of, of winning almost every game since like something like 1980, that, that, that where United have been winning at half time. 82, I think, which is just crazy. That is wild. Nuts, isn't it? Wow. Our traffic is just absolutely insane as a, as a, as a record. But they're then hit by this sumptuous sucker punch from United. Bruno Fernandes releases Rashford and he restores the lead with a, a little bit of help from Ben White. He's a bit unlucky. It hits him and bounces over uh, Ramsdale's outstretched leg. And But after that, Arsenal went a bit off the rails, I thought. Arteta kind of chucked all these cards on the table at once and they lost all sorts of semblance of structure and, and that had kind of meant that they dominated up to that point in the second half. Um, and then they get hit again on the break. Rashford steals the deal. Ericsson finally got an assist after giving the pre-assist to both previous goals. Um, but he was absolutely sensational, I thought, today. Yeah, Ericsson was really good. But just a word on on what kind of happened with, with Arsenal. Even when they, were, when they went 2-1 down, the way they were playing, I think people expected that they'd kind of get a few more chances in that game. 100%. You know, Ten Hag was uh, kind of switching things around, brought on Fred to kind of um, try and shut down Odegaard. But when Arteta made those substitutions straight away, I was looking at it thinking, I don't think that's a wise move. Um, took off all of his left-sided players and it just seemed like they were going to play without a recognised left-back for the remainder of the game. Um, Smith-Rowe and Martinelli started taking up the same positions out on the left wing and kind of maybe not getting in each other's way. Um, but I think they probably could have been utilised in better in different areas. And I thought it was really poor game management from, from Mikel Arteta to kind of really roll the dice that big that early. But then to flip it on the other side, I think it really showed how much maybe Ten Hag has kind of adapted and learned the league in the first six games. 
yeah. to kind of make those substitutions and, and bring on Fred and bring on Casemiro and, and bring on Maguire, even though Maguire got booked within about 60 seconds of coming first, on. First touch, wasn't it? It was a take uh, somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I thought that kind of showed you, maybe not necessarily the different levels of the managers, but just how different approaches to that game and, you know, substitutions can be a really key factor. But on Ericsson, you know, I had the pleasure of watching him for, for Brentford over the last six months of the season and that pass um, for Manchester United's first goal, for Anthony's goal, it's just vintage Ericsson. He just sees the game slightly differently, the way he kind of whipped it around the corner and then those, you know, breaking runs from midfield for, for Rashford's second goal, Manchester United's third, that's just vintage Ericsson. It's something I've seen him do countless times over, over the course of the last season. And so to see him do it for Manchester United now and just him, you know, to continue to progress and elevate and, you know, be basically the player of the match in such a big occasion as this, it's been it's been really brilliant to see. He's definitely, you know, probably gone to another level since he joined Manchester United now that they've kind of stabilised themselves a little bit more. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, plenty of positives for both sides, I think. But United have overcome another massive test here. Eric Ten Hag's reign is very much up and running. Four wins in a row, up into fifth in the league table. And the doom and gloom of that 4-0 loss to Brentford seems like it's in the rearview mirrors at this point. Yeah, definitely. I, I think Ten Hag over the last four games has just basically stabilised Manchester United. Um, not all of those victories have been particularly pretty. But I mean, who cares? The, the, the key thing was to get points on the board. You know, they've lost two games, but now they're only three points um, behind Arsenal who are who are at the top of the table. So they're right in the mix and they've played averagely at times. Um, so that's nothing to begrudge. I think they just looked a lot more organised now. Um, I've obviously settled on that back pairing of Martinez and Varane. And I think we have to give credit to Ten Hag because he's made yeah. some really difficult decisions in the last couple of weeks. He's laid the gauntlet down to Cristiano Ronaldo and Harry Maguire by putting them both on the bench. And so early into your career at a big club like Manchester United, that can really cause issues and that can be difficult to control. Um, but the fact they've managed to get four wins whilst doing that says that things seems to, Ten Hag seems to have a better handle on things. But then obviously, we, we've all witnessed how Manchester United have been over the last couple of years. It might only take another bad result for, for things to kind of swing the other way. But for now, definitely looks like he's got them playing not necessarily his ideal brand of football, but it's definitely looking a lot better than it was <laughs> at halftime when they were 4-0 down against Brentford, for sure. Yeah, I mean, look, they actually, it's, it's been interesting that against Arsenal and Liverpool, and maybe it's the playing teams who are a little bit more expansive, they've, they've really thrived against, mm. but also playing at home in those two games, they've looked much better. It's the two away games, you know, against Southampton and Leicester that they've ground out a little bit and looked a little bit less fluid. And I wonder if that's, uh, to do with the home and away thing or it's to do with the fact that teams who you know are going to sit off a little bit more and, and, and give you more of the ball might not quite suit United at this point um, as much as teams that want to come onto them so, so it's going to be interesting to see how that one develops I mean from an Arsenal perspective it hasn't gone to plan here obviously their unbeaten start is smashed but they were excellent for long periods of this game I thought they'd be disappointed in how the last bit went but there was still a lot to like in, in their build-up play and their creation of chances and in their hopes for a top-four finish. And they are, of course, still, as you say, top of the table. 
Yeah, definitely. I thought Gabriel Jesus, you know, again, it's not any secret that he's just been an absolute revelation since he uh, he moved to Arsenal for Manchester City in the summer. You know, he was causing Martinez and, and Varane problems throughout the game. I remember there was one moment where I think he kind of like shrugged Martinez off the ball, cut, cut it back across goal. And Odegaard should really hit the target and he, he yes. completely mishits it. I think if I was an Arsenal fan watching that game, the thing that would probably concern me the most is that although Saka scored and I think it was the first time he'd, he'd scored from open play in, in 14 Premier League appearances I don't think he played particularly well at times um, lots of occasions where I think he was trying to do a little bit too much um, and you know I completely recognise that when you're a winger um, that's kind of like your MO you kind of have to take risks um, but when Arsenal have obviously tried to sign Rafinha in the summer you know to give them a few more options uh, coming off the bench in the wide areas in a game like that I can really see how they would have benefited benefited from just having another another option off the bench and then of course there's the fact that their midfield's looking a little bit lightweight at the moment so I think that was always going to be the problem with Arsenal this season I think their 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 starting 11 can probably get them in the top four um, but when you start taking a couple of those players away do they still have the same talent and I think there were probably signs of that in this game um, but they were obviously missing party where it, it, we'll see over the course of the season whether they can prove us wrong but I think they might struggle a little bit when that happens but otherwise to not discredit them we've seen them against top six clubs before um, get absolutely battered and I think on this occasion although they lost 3-1 for large spells of this game they were the better team yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I was interested to see at, at one point if he was going to kind of bring Kieran Tierney into the side and, and push Sinchenko into midfield, especially given the, the lack of depth in there at the moment with, with the injuries. So we, we'll see if that develops at some point as well. It's, it's one to, to keep an eye on, uh, I think. But yeah, I, I thought Saka was all right, to be honest. I was, I was a little bit surprised you said that. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a Bakaya Saka fanboy, so it's one of those I'm a, from the I'm same a, part of the world. I'm a, um, I'm a big Saka fan, um, and it's probably just because when you see someone that young, that talented, expectations naturally naturally get higher. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just something to keep an eye on. That it's no secret that he's played. I don't think it's it might not be the most minutes out of any player aged under 21 in the Premier League, but he's definitely up there. In the conversation, um, yeah. And so it's just about, is he getting enough opportunity to rest, but then does he kind of face enough competition for his place and things like that? Um, I think it's just a narrative to to keep an eye on over the coming coming weeks and months. Obviously, he's now going to score a hat-trick in their next game, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll see. I thought he, I thought the battle between him and, La, uh, him and Malassia was yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. It was pretty good. It was an interesting one. I thought he gave Malassia more problems than, than Mohamed Salah did mm. uh, in the game. You know, obviously a couple of a week ago or so. So we'll see. But um, yeah, one of one of those. Um, let's go to Italy, shall we? Where Milan beat into three two in the derby della Madonnina on Saturday on Paramount Plus. A highly entertaining affair that was headlined by rising Portuguese sensation. Rafael Leal, 23-year-old, grabbed two goals and an assist and in full flight. Jay, he's such a joy to behold. Inter couldn't cope with his pace, his intelligence and overall his threat. He was just way too much for them. I mean, his second goal um, was an absolute delight. Uh, there's been a few screamers this weekend. Um, obviously, McAllister was disallowed, but that, that wasn't too bad. Tony's goal, um, but just for the way that he kind of flip-flapped the ball and, and beat those defenders and kind of slotted it into the back post, I think this might be my favourite goal of the weekend. But yeah, when you're a player who's as talented as, as Rafael Leal, 23 years old, what 
your teammates, what your club, what your fans are looking for is for you to make the difference in big games. And so to come up with two goals and an assist in in a massive derby, that's exactly what you want to see. But like you said, he kind of ran the show. So impressive. Um, really, really exciting talent. Yeah, I mean, there are shades of a young Cristiano Ronaldo in him. And I know it's an easy comparison to make because he's a player that plays on the flank and he's Portuguese and, you know, there's that excitement about him. But I think there are those kind of, you know, when, when Cristiano was was raw and young, mm. you know, and he had that kind of desire to just make things happen. And actually, I think overall, I, I don't think that Liao will go on to become a player quite in Cristiano's mould because I, I think that the significant differences between what Cristiano was and what he became. Um, but there are elements of, of when you watch him in full flight with the ball at his feet, you know, cutting inside and, and making things happen. Um, there are sh- flashes, I'd say, of, of reminiscence between him uh, and a young Cristiano. I'm sure there'll be plenty of Portugal fans who will be delighted to hear that kind of thing. Um, but complimenting him in some style was a man at the other end of his career, the eternally underrated <laughs> 35-year-old now, Olivier Giroud, who scored the other goal for the Rossoneri. He just keeps doing it, Jay, in big games. And he's becoming a bit of a legend now at Milan, as he has done almost everywhere he's been. And the term fine wine comes to <laughs> mind. Do you know what? When when I kind of saw that we were going to be talking about Giroud, my, my instant thought was that he's a player who, you know, as you kind of mentioned, is, is really underrated. And I think in five, ten years' time, people will look back on his career with a really, really different appreciation for, for what he achieved. Obviously, he's you know won the World Cup with France, um, did well at Arsenal, did well at Chelsea. But at the same time, throughout his career at Arsenal, he was always criticised for what he couldn't do. And I think now I look back at it and think there should have been so much more appreciation and respect for what he could do. Because at the end of the day, when you put the ball in the box, he's a very, very efficient goal scorer, as we saw in this game against, against Inter Milan. And, you know, he made 29 appearances for for AC Milan last season, a lot of them off the bench, and he's still got 11 goals at the age of 34, 35. That's a fantastic record. So to see him still popping up and and contributing in in these big games, I really do think in a couple of years' time, maybe we should start considering him a legend. Um, And I think that maybe he he, he will never quite get the respect he fully deserves in England. No, I think he will go down eventually in the pantheon of great number nines. You know, mm. he, he's just done it everywhere he's gone and and ultimately just been a success. And I think that you're watching him now at Milan and he's loved and it's lovely to see him being loved. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, not, yeah. Love, 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 doesn't it? But it was, um, <laughs> it's nice to it's nice to see him getting that respect that I think he's he's hard earned, hard fought um, for a long period of his career. Um, Inter actually took the lead here, Jay. And as we discussed last week a little bit, we talked about the sliding doors moments and we were talking about Denzel Dumfries in the game against Lazio. They didn't take them again in this game. They fought back well to make this nervy in the final moments. But ultimately, I feel just Inter are lacking a little bit of conviction right now. There's that the loss to Lazio. They had an, a really unconvincing win midweek over Cremonese. And I just feel like... You know, now there's a derby defeat on top of that. Everything's just kind of not coming up near Azzurri at the moment. And something just feels like it's not quite clicking. I mean, I know they took the lead in this game, um, but AC Milan's defending in that moment was was so 
chaotic and all over the place. I think it would have I mean, been... that's chaotic is kind. <laughs> it's, dread, it's dreadful. Their, their, their high line and everything was all over the place. I think it would have been difficult for, for Brozovic to, to, to not score in that scenario. And yeah, I totally agree. It, it, it does kind of, you know, from the outside looking in, feel like something's not completely right at Inter at the moment. But then again, if you look at the table, so they've won three games, they've lost twice, but they're still only two points behind Napoli and AC Milan at the top of the table. So in the grand scheme of things, if they're not playing particularly well at the moment and, you know, they're having a little bit of a mini crisis, they're still, they're still in the mix and we're still so early in the season. There's still plenty of time for them to, to kind of rescue it and, and, and turn it around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I think this is it, isn't it? There's a long way to go. No chickens to be counted at this point. But a really impressive start to the season for Milan. A less convincing start to the season for Inter. Obviously, they've been missing Lukaku mm-hmm. for the last couple of games. And, and that's a big part of how they've kind of developed. And that partnership between him and Lautaro is massive. Um, but they just need to be careful a little bit. They, they haven't quite got going to the level I think we expected of them this season and and for now Milan hold the bragging rights over the city of Milan. We, we obviously spoke last week about how kind of like wide open Serie is and how unpredictable it is and um, I've just seen that Udinese trounced Roma 4-0. Um, oh yeah absolutely uh, uh, <laughs> annihilated them. Roma were dreadful. <laughs> A Roma team that's like really made some you know really smart moves in the transfer market this summer. Um, and, you know, being talked up as, you know, potentially going to kind of come back with a little bit of a vengeance this year. I've just been absolutely turned over 4-0 by, by Udinese. Um, I just felt like we had to give that a little bit of a mention. It was, cra- it was crazy. That, that, that's all I wanted to say, nothing more. Just a result that, yeah, really took me by surprise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just literally, had pre-recording, I watched this game and I've not seen Roma this disorganised they were all over the place and Udinese just kept hitting them on the counter and they just didn't have any answers to it whatsoever. It was it was truly quite bizarre in, in many ways. So so work to do for Jose Mourinho. I bet, um, um, I bet Mourinho's there in the dressing room going, don't worry guys, it's my second season, but going to win the title. Everybody knows this. <laughs> He was, yeah, he was apoplectic on the sidelines. Uh, and then Tammy Abraham went off with an injury. So it's not looking Oof. quite as rosy um, in Rome right now. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll touch on the other weird stories in Serie A right at the end. Um, over in Spain, we saw Real Madrid host Real Betis in a game that saw the two perfect starts in La Liga go head-to-head on ESPN+. Plus. Um, looking for supremacy at the top of the table and Real Madrid ran out 2-1 winners over their Verde Blanco rivals. It's a tight game this Jay, settled in the end by a winner from Rodrigo, but Madrid just continued to get the job done. They weren't great and this was definitely the toughest test they've had so far and yet they found a way and Ancelotti continues to do that, to find a way to make sure that Real Madrid just keep rolling onwards. I mean, it's obviously a cliche, but it's what champions do. Um, you just grind out wins um, over your opponents. Um, you know, we're saying they, they, they weren't particularly good. I think the, uh, the defending for Sergio Canales' goal, um, I'm sure you can finesse that pronunciation far better than I can. Um, it's not miles off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought their, their defending for that goal was just, it's like they just weren't paying attention. And then for Rodrigo's goal, um, it's, you maybe don't expect the keeper to make the save in that scenario, but he does get a touch to it. And because he's got a touch to it, you feel like, 
you feel like he could have saved it. So Real Madrid yeah. were definitely helped in this scenario. But then you've got to take those chances. Um, and they certainly did that. So maintaining the perfect start, looking in good shape and just keeping on rolling. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, for what it's worth, Betis are my Spanish team and have been for a long, long time. And it was a really frustrating watch in some ways um, because Betis are better than that. Mm. You know, it, it wasn't a great display for them. It wasn't a bad display, but, uh, you know, it, it did feel in some ways like this Real Madrid side were there for the taking mm. and it just wasn't done in any sort of stretch or form. But I wanted to just talk about Aurelien Chouameni, who was absolutely exceptional. Um, Casemiro's departure... I think he's perhaps been thrust into this first team picture as a kind of regular stalwart more quickly than some expected. A lot of it was, okay, Casemiro will see out this season and then Chiumeni will come on and learn his trade and then next season he'd be ready to kind of move into this midfield permanently. But he already looks so assured in this side. His defensive reading of the game is absolutely sublime. He put out fires on the counter, left, right and centre. He's going to be some player. I think he already is some player. Yeah, that, that, that's, that was, I, I was literally I was thinking that as I said it, I was like, I know what's going to come. <laughs> you te- no, you teed me up perfectly. I think, uh, yeah, you don't let a player of, of Casemiro's kind of um, of caliber go unless you're extremely confident in who you've kind of got in to replace him. I think Chouameni's kind of shown already, as you kind of mentioned, especially in this game, that he's kind of like the perfect replacement. So mobile, so intelligent to kind of make all of those interceptions. And you know what? Really, unfortunately. He so, so, so nearly capped it off with a goal, only to be denied by what was a, what was a really good save. So I think Germany's only 22 years old, already looks, you know, sublime in that kind of Real Madrid midfield. Um, and you just kind of wonder, like, kind of like, what else is he going to achieve? Give him a couple of more years. Is he kind of going to be, you know, the best holding midfielder around? I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the worst shout in the world. No, no, I, I don't. I don't think so either. I think it's a very, very reasonable shout. <laughs> in fact, I mean, look, this was you know the midfield. We saw Chiuameni and Kamavinga both start. Modric is the only one of the old three who started this game. Now, Luka Modric is a wizard, and he's allowed to basically do whatever he wants. And he did, <laughs> he did so again. But it's nice to see Chiuameni and Kamavinga starting to build that relationship, build that understanding, because you know that's the future of this Real Madrid side. And to be perfectly honest, it looks like that future is in very good hands uh, it, with those two. They are they are very very special. Just on Betis quickly, um, I, I think you know whilst it wasn't the best performance in the world, they, they did show why they're in a lot of people's pictures for the top four in, in, in Spain. They held their own here, I thought, without without setting the world on fire against the champions. They did cause problems, scored a good goal and fought incredibly valiantly. And I think there's plenty of reason for Manuel Pellegrini's men to hold their heads high. The, you know, the, this is a better side who, who didn't roll over, who stayed fighting until the final whistle and and could have nicked something. And I think that's probably testament to, to how good this side is. I think there's very much going to be in this conversation for the Champions League come the end of the season should we go around the grounds then to finish things off let's um, do it let's do it let's start in Serie A let's go back to Italy um, Napoli came from behind to beat Lazio 2-1 uh, and Starboy Kvaratskhelia scored the winner yet again <laughs> he's top MVP. of the Capacanonieri scoring chart MVP yeah, he's, he's, I'm calling he's it. He's so good. <laughs> he's so good. He's fast becoming an icon, I think, at the Maradona. Keep, they keep their unbeaten start going Napoli and maintaining their place at the top of the table, at least until Atalanta play uh, on Monday. They could go top. Don't think anyone would have seen that coming after <laughs> the first couple of match weeks. Uh, as you said, Roma absolutely battered 4-0 by Udinese. Um, 
after a tough start, Udinese look a real handful, you know, really, really tidy. They beat Fiorentina and Roma this week, moved up to fourth in the table. No one is going to enjoy that trip to Udini that this year, I don't think. They, they, they look really, really hard to play against. Um, and Fiorentina and Juve played out an entertaining one-all draw in Florence. This fixture's always fiery. It really, this is one of those ones which is like a rivalry that nobody really knows about, um, and it, it makes me happy. Uh, it, it's more, it's one way in, in some ways. Fiorentina hate Juventus. Juventus are sort of look at them and be like, you're right there, lads. Um, <laughs> but... It's a, it's always a really, really good game. And and Juve took a, an early lead, only to be pegged back. To be honest, Laviola might well feel aggrieved not to have actually taken all three points here. Luka Jovic missed a penalty, which would have given them the lead. Um, not ideal for him. Uh, obviously, after that move from Real Madrid this summer, I still think he's going to be a success in Florence. Um, but Fiorentina bounced back from that that loss to Udinese with a, with a very good point against Juve. And... Juve still don't look like they're quite at the races um, yet. So that's going to be an interesting one to, to monitor over the next couple of weeks. Um, in Spain, Barcelona hammered Sevilla 3-0 in Seville, continuing Lepetiki's disastrous start to this season. One point in four games for Sevilla, Jay. The, the pressure continues to build on Lepetiki. Barcelona are cooking, though, and they tore their opponents apart here. Some really, really good stuff from Xavi's side. I was going to say, could you make a comparison between Leicester and Sevilla in terms of two teams who have, you know, tried to break the the kind of like traditional teams in their respective leagues and are now maybe kind of paying the, the consequences for a few bad recruitment decisions and, and maybe a managers who who's kind of become a little bit disillusioned and, and stayed there a little bit too long? Because like you said, Barcelona... You know, kind of beat them 3-0 very comfortably. One point for four games. More. It exactly. really could have been more. Exactly. But when I saw that, that's what I just suddenly thought, hang on a second. Two teams who you'd maybe say are kind of in similar situations in their, their respective leagues. Yeah, I think, you know, Sevilla lost their first choice centre-half pairing in Diego Carlos to Aston Villa and, and Jules Koundé to Barcelona and just haven't really replaced them. Um, and, and they just look really, really like discombobulated almost they, they don't look like there's any cohesion about this side whatsoever and the fans are starting to turn on on, on Lepetegui and it all just looks quite ugly to be honest in Seville so we'll be, you know I, I do I do wonder how long that one is going to last and um, something that is going well though is Unai Emery's Villarreal they sit third in the table after a 4-0 win over Elche now Elche are rubbish like genuinely quite <laughs> but um no, still no very holds good no holds barred no they just they've just had such a bad start to the season you're just like watching it being like are you sure there and it, it's just not well and look they're, they're obviously fighting against the odds it, it's not it's not pretty um they're in the bottom three they've got one point from four same as Sevilla look if I can say that Sevilla are dreadful I'm going to say Elche JR as well they're on the same they're on the same record um so so there we are but Villarreal very impressive um very good from Emery's side uh, and it was a result that was matched by their near neighbours Valencia who were very impressive in their win over Hetafe um sometimes maybe good as Gennaro Gattuso famously once <laughs> said um some tricky results for Valencia at the start of the season but a, a good win there uh, and Atleti led against Real Sociedad were pegged back to draw one all at Anoeta uh, whilst Sasuna today's surprise package in La Liga. They continued their good early season form with a 2-1 win over Rayo Vallecano. They are up to fifth. A very impressive start 
from Osasuna. Um, in Germany, Bayern held by Union Berlin in the capital, meaning that they both stay unbeaten, but they're leapfrogged into first place. Look, a battling performance from Union on this. Um, they, they were on the defensive for a lot of it, but I thought they were well worth their point. Um, and I was, I, I was kind of predicting a shock here. I thought Union might win this one. Uh, Bayern were the better side, but a, a good good result this for Union and they continue to defy expectations uh, as do Freiburg who went top of the table after their thrilling 3-2 win over Bayer Leverkusen chaotic frenetic helter-skelter encounter this Bundesliga at its best Freiburg took three Bayer Leverkusen two really really enjoyable uh, and Europa League winners Eintracht Frankfurt hammered RB Leipzig 4-0 in a game where Leipzig didn't muster a shot on target uh, much better for my tracks. They had a, a bit of a ropey start to the season, um, but this is a really good win. And and they, they didn't let Leipzig anywhere near this game. They, they completely and utterly dominated. Well worth that 4-0. Um, over in France, Monaco won the Derby de la Côte d'Azur 1-0 in a scrappy encounter against Nice. On a night when Nice unveiled new signing <laughs> Ross Barkley, Jay. There's a lot of ex-Premier League faces at Nice. Now, I was I was listing them off earlier on Twitter. Yeah, loving it's, it. It's, it's a bit of a madhouse over in Nice. I don't even know what kind of what to, to, to make of Nice um, because it doesn't even look as if there's a strategy with who they're signing. Um, it just looks like isn't. you've got Premier League experience. Uh, yeah, we'll sign you. They've obviously got Nicola Pepe, Ross Barkley, Aaron Ramsey, uh, Mad Spec Sorensen from Brentford's uh, gone there on loan. That was a little bit out of the blue. Um, yeah. So they're they're assembling some squad there, but whether where, where that will kind of leave them at the end of the season will be very interesting to see. Nine ex Premier League names in their squad. Sorensen, Barkley, Joe Bryan from Fulham, Kasper Schmeichel, uh, Aaron Ramsey, Morgan Schneiderlin, Mario Lamina, uh, Marcin Bulka, once of, famously once of Chelsea, uh, and Nicola Pepe. That's a lot. Jim Ratcliffe, obviously, is, uh, is, is the owner at, at Nice and the head of that project. And there was a lot of people in Manchester United colours who, who wanted Jim Ratcliffe to buy the Glazers out. Now, uh, just looking at that, I think that maybe there's, there's, that's not the silver bullet that Manchester United's ownership is after. Um, but we shall see. We shall see. Uh, PSG hammered Nantes. 3-0 to maintain their lead at the top of the table. Kylian Mbappe got another two goals. Their march to the title seems relentless. But some of the other big guns had wins too. Marseille, Lille and Lyon all right up in that chasing pack, which is good to see. The more competitive that gets at the top of Liga, the better for everyone. Look, I just think. just yeah. wait until Pepe, Ramsey and Barkley, you know, start clicking and PSG are in serious <laughs> trouble, I'm telling you. With Joe Bryan's deliveries from that left-hand side, I tell you, they're, they're going to have a great time. Um, and finally, in the Premier League, Spurs is unbeaten. Start continued at home to Fulham. They won 2-1. It was a very, very good performance. I was at this game and Spurs were impressive. Richarlison in particular, absolutely relentless. Um, a really, really impressive performance from him. Liverpool and City both dropped points against Everton and Aston Villa, respectively. And Brighton continued to impress. They had a stunning 5-2 win over Leicester, who remain rooted to the bottom of the table with one point from five games, as we say. Um, Brighton are really good. Like, they're really, really, really good. And I think when you when you look at this, there were plenty of moments in this game where their heads could have dropped. They went down within the first couple of minutes to Leicester, who obviously have had a terrible start. And, and that could that could be like, oh, God, we're losing to this Leicester side. They cut back, went 2-1 up. 
then conceded again. They had the third, their, their kind of goal that was going to take them 3-2 up, disallowed. It was an absolute howitzer um, from Alexis <laughs> McAllister. It's been all over social media. If you haven't seen it, make sure you go and find it. Um, disallowed. It's a goal of the season that never was contender, <laughs> I think. for I'm sure there's going to be loads in there this year. Um, and then they went on and absolutely you know, saw this one off, um, despite a couple of setbacks. So I, I thought Brighton were very, very impressive today. Really impressive. And, and Leandro Trossard in particular, exceptional. I have to say quickly, um, it almost felt like McAllister and Ivan Tony had kind of secretly challenged each other to some kind of goal scoring competition because <laughs> they both scored penalties. They both scored free kicks. Tony scored an outrageous goal from outside the box and VAR prevented McAllister from, from making that same claim. So comparing those goals and those free kicks side by side, it, is very enjoyable. So please do that if you get the chance. I wonder if Alexis McAllister is going to take the match ball. Obviously scored two and had one disallowed for VAR. Do you reckon he could just give it to him? Be yeah, like, yeah, you've got We two. think you scored a hat trick, so it's fine. You've got to. If 5-2 like win, then you've scored twice. One of them's a free kick. You've got to. Match ball, match ball. Um, and Nottingham Forest collapsed from 2-0 up to lose 3-2 against Bournemouth in a catastrophic second half. Look, there, there's plenty of talk it's early in the season and obviously it's not the game that's going to define everything, but you can't be losing these kind of games if you want to stay up, Jay. No, 2-0 at home um, against a team who have just recently sacked their, their manager. Um, Nottingham Forest kind of need to be kind of cruising at that point and, and taking control of things. Um but that's where you just wonder with everything that's kind of happened at the club this summer with all these influx of new players, they don't know each other very well. So if there is some sort of adversity, do they fully understand how to kind of change their shape um, and kind of react to that? Because obviously that was the key thing for, for Bournemouth in this game. They kind of switched to the wing-backs and it, it kind of really helped them kind of um, take hold of momentum. And Nottingham Forest kind of didn't really, didn't really know what to do. Um, so... I'm really intrigued to kind of see what happens over the next couple of weeks and couple of months because I have a feeling I have a feeling Steve Cooper could be in trouble in November time um, because I think he's a wonderful coach but having recruited that many players um, Nottingham Forest's you know kind of owners will be expecting big results and and you know, losing three two after being two 0 up at home is not the is not the greatest look. Having said that, I, 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 I think Cooper is a great coach, and I'd, I'd love to kind of see him do really well there. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And but to be fair, Nottingham Forest's owner is not particularly known for his patience. Um, so so that's going to be an interesting one. Twenty one new players in. I wondered aloud this week on uh, on social media if we will see Nottingham Forest field at eleven, a starting eleven this this year comprised of completely new players who weren't in the side or in the club last year and if so would that be the first time that had ever happened must, in the Premier League must must be it must be the only I, time. So. I, I remember Fulham a couple of years ago signed we had nine we had nine oh, my, in a guess, nine ones my guess was going to be 10 um, mm. was nine the record to go from nine to 21 is absolutely wild oh sorry I, I meant we we, fee we fielded nine players of an 11 who hadn't been at the club the previous year but how many signings but did I, you make that summer I think it was about yeah 12 13 always makes me uneasy when clubs do that yeah yeah but I mean look it, they need they needed loads of players if, I don't think that's anything if, wrong with that Forrest, but ultimately you've got to make it work if Nottingham Forest stay up by a point it was all worth it 
and, 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 and they are the margins. That's what they'll be judged by. Yeah, they stay up on goal difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Never mind the point. <laughs> so let's see. Um, last story of the week was in Glasgow, uh, and there is a USMNT twist to this because Cameron Carter Vickers came out on top in the battle for US centre back supremacy in the old firm uh, against James Sands, a Celtic battered Rangers 4-0. Now, Celtic were absolutely brilliant. Uh, Kyogre Furuhashi, who's been Celtic's talisman this season and, and last season as well, but was out for a long period with injury, went down in the first minute of this game, um, had to be substituted. And and Celtic reacted to that like, like, it, like it hadn't happened. They just absolutely streamed through Rangers at will. It was a real, real impressive performance from Ange Postacoglu's men. And they faced Real Madrid in the Champions League at Celtic Park this week, uh, which I think is going to be a really, really interesting contest. So if you're looking, you're kind of lost or at loose end for a game that you think is going to be an interesting watch this week in the Champions League, would hardly recommend Celtic versus Real Madrid. I think that one could be a bit of a crackerjack. And I think this Celtic team are going to surprise a few people. So there you are, my tip for the week. <laughs> it's not just a review on this show today. Again, you're getting forward thinking tips as well. Love that. Yeah, absolutely. Great result, Celtic. Really, really impressive. Um, and and they are clear at the top of the Scottish Premier League. Uh, with that, it's time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe for this weekend. Uh, all that's left for me to do is say thank you to all of you for listening. Thank you so much to Jay Harris. Pleasure as always, my friend. Absolutely. I've been Jack Collins. This has been your weekend review. We hope you've enjoyed it. We will see you next week. <laughs>